0: The Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello, welcome back to The Magic Book Club podcast with me, Tom Price. This is the podcast where I find out exactly what makes our favourite authors put pen to paper and fingers to their keyboards so on today's episode i'm going to catch up with performer and writer helen paris about her gorgeous new book it's called lost property you're going to absolutely love it and i predict you're going to love her as well she's wonderful and a little bit later on i'm going to be chatting to the icon the wonderful the genius ruth jones about her lovely read us three which is out now in paperback So sit back, pour yourself a cup of tea, get that dog on the lead, head out for the walk, keep the Magic Book Club podcast on and enjoy the show. So joining us now on the show, we have got, well, not just a writer, which I guess is the main reason she's here, also an actor and a performer. It's the fabulous Helen Paris, whose debut novel, Lost Property, is out now. Hello, Helen. Hello, Tom. It's lovely to be here. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. We should say a little bit of background for the listener. It's the windiest day ever today, so we're we're sort of taking refuge to have a nice cosy chat about books. I like that.
1: I've been all around my house, Tom, trying to find somewhere where the wind isn't blowing sort of gale force through the windows. (laughs) So I'm crouched in a corner of my bedroom right now, just so you all can get me site specifically.
0: Oh, good. I like that. I'll tell you what site specific. (laughs) I I tell you what, talking of your performing history, I love a bit of site specific theatre. You can't go wrong.
1: You know, you can't go wrong. I think I, over the years I've performed in California redwoods on mm. a beautiful windswept, keeping with the theme of the there day. There you go, there you go. Beach in Hockham, beautiful Hokum in Norfolk, in a vintage bus in yes. the East Midlands. You you name it, I, I've yes. been on
0: it performing. I'm we should you. explain, shouldn't we? <laughs> so site-specific theatre is this thing where actors put on shows anywhere, basically, and it's it's a it's a it's a magical thing, and I'm amazed it doesn't happen more often. Do well, you, you know what I love about it most is that it, it often means
1: that you get a different kind of audience that might not necessarily go and see your work or go to the theatre. Like I remember I did a piece about the sense of smell, and because smell is so connected with home and sort of memories of, of home and of family, I set the piece in people's houses so these wonderful people would volunteer their homes for the performance. So it meant that we ended up doing the shows in, in council houses, in Birmingham and in um beautiful apartments on uh the east lower east side in 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 New York and wonderful (sighs) dilapidated buildings in Brazil and ex-communist buildings in China what it it. means is what you the thing is Tom is that the next door neighbor gets interested in what's going on in the house you know in the flat in the apartment next door and rocks up and comes to the performance so that's
0: one of the many things I love about about doing site-specific theater work it is brilliant it is brilliant and you know to link it into uh, into the book lost property which is out now do you, do you think that your sense of of place that you get from doing theatre shows like that is is was used was that useful to that did you inject that into the book because i do i feel a very strong sense of the the lost property building that sort of uh, institutional big warehouse thing i feel like i can i feel you know almost like i can smell it when i read the book
1: uh, Tom absolutely I mean I was completely inspired to write Lost Property the book after doing a stint a short stint just for sort of five days in Lost Property in Baker Street in London mm. I was doing some research for a theatre project that was looking at loss and change and I was so interested in sort of the materiality of loss, it lost objects so my wonderful producer set me up in Transport for London's Lost Property office uh, mm. in Baker Street which is coincidentally just down the road from you know um Sherlock and Watson's pad in two two one B Baker Street, and that also plays a little bit of a part in the book. But yes. the, the the basements in Lost Property are just filled floor to ceiling with all these lost objects, just waiting to be found. And each one of them sports this mustard coloured I would say Dijon if we're being precise. <laughs> Good, Dijon I like the precision. <laughs> we need a bit of... again, again smelling it, already smelling it. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's very important to be precise in Lost Property. That can make all the difference as to whether your um, item is returned to you. So there's this sort of incredible visual display of colour as you go down to these cavernous basements and you see this uh, sort of kaleidoscope of colour and all these objects that have been lost nestled up against each other waiting for their owner. And, you know, I think if I hadn't gone and done the, the work in Lost Property, I could have imagined, you know, a sort of a a huge amount of lost phones and brollies and shopping bags that filling the shelves. But I don't think I would ever have guessed about the <sighs> false teeth or the two yes or the 200 and a weight of sultanas or the replacement (laughs) limbs or the chinese typewriter so you know there really was something about going and being there and working there that really inspired me on that theater project and it's one of the reasons that, that the place of lost property took up residence in my imagination and stayed with me so much so that then i thought you know i think there's some more work i need to do here and that was the beginning of the book
0: and what a fantastic place to start because lost property is this endless source of, it's just got everything in it. You've got nostalgia, you've got memories, you've got loss. And also the thing which I love most about it when you describe the, 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 all the things in this this place is hope. There's a hope there and it's really, it's really upbeat and, and it, people, I will look after this thing for you. You think it's lost and gone forever and someone's stolen it. It's not, it's here and I'm looking after it. There's a humanity in there somewhere.
1: You know that absolutely is um there's a little uh, comment that my protagonist in lost property who's called dot watson makes and quite near the beginning she's telling the reader you know i can't say a bad word about the people who return lost property last year 13000 keys were handed in and she says although unfortunately only a fraction of them were claimed this discrepancy speaks to a heartwarming desire to help and an absolute lack of hope. You know, so what she's referring to is that all those wonderful people who see, you know, some lost keys on the surrendered on the 73 bus and think, you know, somebody might want those. And they do the whole schlep over to Baker Street and hand them in, which I think is actually showing a real sense of sort of um, human camaraderie and hope. And then she's also sort of referring to a lot of people thinking, well, I don't know, I'll never find those keys again. No one would have bothered to hand those in. But the thing is... People do. People do hand things in and they hand in very valuable things, of course. But they also hand in things like, you know, the teddy bear with one eye missing, which, of course, is also equally valuable in a totally different way.
0: Yes, yes. And it speaks to holding on to things in this in this day and age. And that feels like a zeitgeisty thing. We are trying to throw less things away and hold on to things. Things are precious. Don't assume they're lost and gone forever. You know, there's a there's a continuity there, which I love as well.
1: Absolutely, and and one of the things that I was really I found quite extraordinary was that you realise that loss is a real barometer of the times that we're living in. You know that actually whole seasons are marked by loss. You sort of have mis uh, mislaid umbrellas that flood in during all the winter months. Although you know, to be honest, let's face it, in 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 Britain, all the months <laughs> constantly. Um, you yeah. know, and then it, then in, uh, in 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 in. Um, Wimbledon times, you know, suddenly it's lost tennis rackets, a go-go, you know. So there's that beautiful sense of, yes, you know, loss sort of really, really measuring the times. And also, you know, um, I remember when I was there, there was lots of A to Zs. I don't know if, how many listeners remember those A to Zs, but A to Z used to be the way that we would navigate London. Yes, of, of course. course you, you know, now they've all been replaced by the other way we navigate London, which is the preponderance of mobile phones that are all in there. Yeah. But, you know, you're absolutely right about there's the level of care that's not only, um, not only given by the people that bring the lost property in that they found, but also I found really apportioned by the lost property workers themselves, and that that really stayed with me. Do you know that they they know how important those objects are to people, and there mm. was a real level of care and attention paid, whether it was a diamond ring that had been lost or that teddy bear with half its stuffing missing, you know, that's a sense of value being apportioned equally. Mm. And I think that that was lovely and that that attention and that sense of care really threaded its way through into the novel.
0: Yes. And there's a sense that as as we see the lost property coming and going and you say it's a barometer, which is a, it's a beautiful way of thinking about it. But that does make the people who work in the lost property office somehow observers, somehow are outcasts, somehow misfits. And And Dot, let's talk about Dot, the main character. She is she definitely fits into that mold, doesn't she?
1: She definitely found her right place for many reasons, ending up taking the job at Lost Property. Um, She is assiduous in how she diligently logs and labels every item that comes in, you know, and that could be an expensive leather wallet or a mediocre English essay, you know. If it comes in, then she logs it, she tags it, and she shelves it, then it is Lost Property. And um, she the Lost Property office in Baker Street doesn't actually have a uniform, but Dot, as I said, takes her job very seriously. She's fashioned her own uniform um, out of felt, because felt <laughs> is a very supportive fabric. Um, she uh, has favourite words, cellar tape, super glue, and safety pin, because you know these are words that help us keep things safe and stop things from becoming lost. But she's also increasingly fond of the occasional nip of absinthe. From an unclaimed bottle rolling around in the nether regions of lost property. And you know, the reader starts to learn that Dot is actually as lost as the items that she diligently spends her day um cataloguing. And her sort of a year, years ago her life veered unexpectedly, of course, and she's never she's never quite recovered.
0: Mm, mm, she yearns. She yearns for that. Freedom again, doesn't she? And that, that the, the travel, and, and she, you know, here she is reading these travel books found in lost property. So, there's a there's there's a sort of caged bird element to her, which is so something people will really connect with.
1: Oh, caged bird that's such a beautiful way of describing it. Yes, she has this, you know, because a lot of travel guides are left particularly on the piccadilly line that goes into <laughs> oh, Heathrow he of course absolutely yes. and you know often it's people either sort of getting ready for their journey they're sort of um reading up on it before they go before they get to the um, airport and then they just forget it in their sort of stress of you know travel stress oh oh travel stress to have that again um mm. and <laughs> then or they or they abandon it on the way back from their journey sort of to lighten the load of their case anyway so many travel guides left on the piccadilly line folks dot Collects them, and if they if they are not if they're not collected, she has sort of a library of them. And what she what she does is she sort of has her own travel exchange program. And she will look at a particular object left in those property, like the particular sort of hang of a gabardine raincoat, perhaps. And she look at it and she think, oh, I don't know. There's something slumping about the the shoulders. There's something sad about the sort of the overstretched belt, as if the person's always trying to sort of give themselves a little bit more sort of support and you know, get themselves a bit upright, I think what they need is a trip to Amsterdam and she will slip 24 hours in Amsterdam, Baedeker's Guide, you know, into their um, pocket so that when the person collects their gabardine, overcoat, they might then think, oh, I, I should just pop off there. And she imagines them sort of whizzing along the gracht, you know, or, or tucking into a strip waffle. And she sort of prescribes it almost homeopathically that that's the journey that they might go on. And so it's yes. one of the one of the many sort of idiosyncratic things that Dot does while she's in lost property.
0: But it's also got that thing, which is a, such a great celebration of the power, the transformative, the traveling power of books that we all love so much. And hence the reason everyone's listening to this podcast today, because this is what we love doing. And it's, it's fascinating that you have, have taken this turn in your career when you go, when you're going from working with people and collaborating as a, as a performer and an actor and, and writing as much more a solitary thing. So how have you how have you found that, Helen?
1: You know, it is much, it is much more solitary. Um, although, what did surprise me is that, of course, theatre is so collaborative. And because a lot of the projects that I do, my company is called Curious, and so a lot of the projects start with a question, you know, like the a project about smell, started with, you know, well, how does smell connect with memory and emotion? What is it that when we smell something, we suddenly remember a person and feel sort of transported back to a to a particular place? Or working with... Um, so so. When you ask those questions, you need to find the people that you can um, help answer them. So I worked with a smell scientist in in Bangalore, in India, or to to look at the veracity of gut feelings, you know, whether we should trust that feeling in our tummy when we think, oh, I don't know if I should go out today. Should we trust that feeling? Well, so then I went and worked with some neurogastroenterologists. It's a fantastic team in, in Barts, actually, in London. And it turns out that actually you should, more often than not, you should trust those gut feelings. So, you know, I'd always found theatre to be incredibly collaborative on that level, as well as obviously working with you know, choreographers and musicians and um, te- uh, technologists and stage managers. But what I found coming into fiction and working in the world of literature is that actually it is also extraordinary collaborative. Yes, there are the hours upon hours upon Mm. Hours that you <laughs> s- sitting, you know, bummed a chair, yeah. pulling the hair out, you know, trying to get the, the work written. But there are also then this extraordinary team that come on board, the agent that is really fighting your corner and doing everything to get your book out the editor is doing everything she can to make your book mm. as word perfect as possible then all the incredible marketing and publicity that come in you know doing their damnedest to sell your book and get their book get your book out there and get you on wonderful podcasts like this so you know there is that other sort of collaborative um infrastructure that comes in that is just wonderful because it is fueled by such a passion you know and i think if if I wanted to say to people who were sort of wanting to get into that world of publishing and you know, it's, we all know that it's hard we all know that it's competitive, you know, but we also know that people love books and need books now more than ever. So be inspired by that, but also be inspired by the fact that there is this extraordinary team out there who love literature as much as you do. Um, but you know, what I found is that when I make work, um, for theatre, I'm I'm often thinking, you know, of what the experience is for the audience. Too. You know, how can I curate a particular experience for them? Especially if I'm inviting them into somebody else's house and leading them out on an olfactory journey about smell. And even though when I'm writing the book, I'm thinking about the story. That's what I'm thinking about. I'm not th- thinking about the sort of the readership or when it goes out there. I'm thinking about the story. I'm thinking about Lost Property. I'm thinking about Doc Watson. But there then becomes a a point in the progress when I do think about the audience in this case the reader in the same way I think I want to have, you know, I want them to have an intimate experience. I want them to ha- I want to create an environment that is as you as you've so beautifully described it, is feels full of sort of sensuality that, that describes lost property in a way that they can feel it, that they can smell it, that is tactile, that is fully sensorial. So, you know, in another way there is that sort of sense of a conversation with a reader that is really delightful and that is similar but of course different. Um to, to what it is when i'm performing in front of
0: them yeah yeah but you get that thing as a performer where you have you have a, a very strong sense of an audience uh, in your head and i can tell that it reminds me of reading uh rachel joyce in fact if any fans of rachel joyce will love this book it's the same you have you have a a, a natural instinct for what an audience likes along with which is basically great storytelling and great character and and that is that that I wasn't surprised when I found out that you had a, a performing and a theatre background. I am, however, slightly surprised to find out you're also a professor at a couple of universities. Tell me about your time management, Helen. This is insane.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I do I do sort of adhere to that belief. The more you do, the more you do. You know, I, I do believe that. <laughs> and I love teaching. I mean, I just I love working with students. I love encouraging them to make performance. So um, I've. i have just for the last sort of eight years i was working in um in stanford university in california working with some absolutely beautiful um students teaching them performance um and i've taught for the last 25 years and i'm i've just actually with my other hat on myself and my 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 curious co-director um leslie hill have just written a book based on 25 years of teaching um called called Devising Theatre, which is also coming out this year. And it's sort of a, a, a hands-on book for students, for artists, for teachers, for anybody who wants some um, tr- tried and tested uh, workshop exercises for people who are dev- devising their own theatre work. Mm. Um, so, and, you know, the wonderful thing about starting to write fiction is also then letting myself, who's been a professor, let myself be a student, because I think it's, it's a gift that we give ourselves to be students again in whatever it is you know to learn how to garden to learn how to cook and i think we've been doing a lot of that over the last year haven't we finding new ways of being and expressing ourselves in the world because the world has been so different for us so so i love teaching i love that And um, you know what i love most i think about teaching is working with a student on and it's like a sort of a, a sort of a misty afternoon and you're in a black box studio and people are trying <laughs> out an idea yes and you know so of either the dust smokes are in the air and you're in this sort of little black box space and and it's just this moment in time of something some little extraordinary moment happens and it's not the show it might never be in the in the the final piece but it's just this moment when a, a sort of moment of contact and communication is being made and I I love those moments those raw moments and I think what I also love about working with students and teaching and I've, I've had the privilege of being able to teach sort of in many places over the world, in Taiwan and in India and in China and in Australia. So really having this access to this extraordinary uh, different cultures. But what we do when what we all do when we make work is we have this moment of exchange and communication, and I encourage people to make work. In those raw moments, that fails and flops and is is gawky and ugly and unattractive, because there's also a beauty in that. And I think sometimes we have to make our so-called I'm doing air I'm doing air quotes here worst <laughs> work to make our best work. And sometimes the work that fails is also gorgeous, and you find something in that. You
0: know, you're you're just the best advert for a curious mind I've ever spoken to, Helen. <laughs> you're just a fanta- It's just fantastic. This this creativity, this curiosity, this fearlessness, because you've got to be fearless to embark on any career. Whether uh, in the creative arts, whether it's theatre, academia, whether it's writing, you have to throw yourself into it, and it's from doing that that we have the disasters and the failures. But then we learn the resilience, and you end up making a beautiful book like *Lost Property*, and it's it's such a great. You, you know, what, Alan, you you're an example to us all. That's what you are. <laughs>
1: Oh, bless you. I'm still, you know, I'm still reading from the from the Rachel Joyce, you know, sort of connection, because I she's absolutely extraordinary writer. So I can, I can basically die happy now. No. With that because she's absolutely wonderful. But That's do you know true. what I think is so important for us now more than ever, because we all know about all the cuts that are happening to, to the arts. And we have to keep on keeping on, we have to keep on making our work. We have to keep on whatever the odds we have to keep on because art, because contact and communication is more important now than ever. We and we know that from all the books that we've read. Mm. We know what's happened to all our wonderful live artists, you know, not being able to perform over the last year. We have to support each other in our creative endeavours because they are so
0: important. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, your book is, it's been loved by many people. In fact, there's a quote on the front of the book I've got here. Rich, uh, rich, funny and brimming with heart. That's by Beth Murray, uh, a.k.a. Oh, lovely b- Beth a- a- Murray, a- a- yes. A.k.a. my wife. <laughs> so...
1: Oh, well, she, she's another example of this woman who is such a beautiful writer in her own right and yet is so they're championing other writers and other books. And I, I love that world of Twitter, actually. I'm such a newbie to it. You know, I sort of yes. hung in the back, you know, like a wallflower. But <sighs> my God, you get people like Beth that are just out there reading the books and putting the word out about, about them. And that's what this writer's community does. And that's what programs like this and podcasts like this do, Tom. Yes. So thank you. Like wife. <laughs> I will. I'll, I'll pass
0: that on. She no. She genuinely loved your book. She was reading this long before you'd been booked for this, and she said she was really, really enjoying it. So when I heard it was you were coming on, I was absolutely thrilled. Um, it's also that's very, very interesting. That's really resonated. I, having seen Beth become a writer in the last couple of years, and the online communities, Facebook communities for writers and stuff like that, it is it is really useful. It has been uh, really nice to see the positive side of social media and to see that collaboration element. You know, you talk about the the isolation of writing. The social media uh, backbone that other writers give each other is 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 worth giving a shout out to isn't
1: it 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 absolutely is it absolutely is it yes can't speak about it highly enough it's that's the way we have that's the way that we that's the way that we survive and thrive you know we support each other we read each other's works and we support you get each other's books out into the independent bookstores as well
0: yes yes absolutely um so helen it's slightly obvious question but looking at this book you know is there is there a, a a theater show in this book is there a tv show in this book do you think there is a future for it in that sense
1: Well, the thing is about loss, it just never stops, does it? It's universal, I think, that we can all relate to. I mean, I think what the book really tries to do is to talk about loss in all its myriad forms, you know, and it's, it's what I think the, the real statement of the book, the heart of the book, is that loss is the price that we pay for love you know and I think it's a it's a portrait of loss whether it's about losing your brolly or losing your way in life or there's also a dementia story that threads through um and mm-hmm. there are also joyful losses there's one moment where Dot really loses her inhibition in a Camden club in a in a rowdy line dance class so so L- she's I a say- great line dancer
0: I, lo- I really love the how I <laughs> love how she lost her inhibitions I felt like god I imagine if I could ever do that without alcohol that would be a miracle Absolutely. she does have a bit of she does have a little bit of a snifter I
1: think before she goes down there and starts doing her boot scooting shuffle but but, you know, I, so so yes, I mean, I think I am not the person to make that, Do you know, I, I have done, I've done some work with Lost in, in, through theatre performance, but I think there there is there are other stories to be made from this absolutely, because I think it's universal, isn't it? And I think, I think one of the things that I love about objects um, is that objects, that tactile memory, when we hold objects, we know how meaningful they are to us, how they can, holding, an everyday object, a pipe, a bag, a small purse, can contain in its memory, contain in its body like a memory, a trace of a life lived, of a person loved. I think objects can be portals through their shape, their smell their memories, and can let us time travel back to the past. So I think that, I think those sort of things now, maybe more than ever, are really important for us to connect and hold on to. So yes, I would love to think there is a a lot of fruitfulness in this this whole world of loss that we can connect to in, in its myriad ways and shapes and forms.
0: The thing I kept thinking about when I was reading this was what is the item that I would most like to find? What is the lost item? And yes. the the one for me, which I'll say to give you a chance to think of yours, because uh, that's the inevitable question at the end of this. Uh, but the one for me was uh, a Swiss army knife my dad bought me when mm. I was 10 years old. I loved that thing and I mm. treasured it and I lost it when I was about 12. I only had it for a couple of years, but it was so fantastic. It had all the, th- it had like, I think it had 26. I don't know why I remember that precise detail. It had 26 different um, things on it, different knives and obviously uh, very good for horseshoes, shoes, uh, magnifying glass, all that sort of stuff, and I, oh, the the way I, I treasured that item. So that's the thing I would like to most find if if there was a a magical lost property. Uh,
1: Natasha, did you go to lost property and check for that? Because it might well. have been there. Dot might maybe they've labelled <laughs> it and logged it and put it down in the basement.
0: Go find Dot. Help me, Dot. <laughs> it's it's good. A good twenty years ago now. Uh, what about you though, Helen? What's what's the thing if you could if you could dive into a magical lost property office? What is the thing you'd most like to find? Mm. Well
1: there's a there's a there's a few in terms of loss to have been the barometer of times if, you know we, I love a nice pair of sunglasses but because we only get to wear those for like maybe a couple of weeks in July you know mm-hmm. so we don't become habituated to them I'm losing them all the time so I think I've got a stack an Elton John supply of but you know of sunglasses or um, Jackie or NASA's supply of sunglasses glasses down in um, <laughs> our property somewhere and then I remember I this my dad had this beautiful um Jacket that he'd wear at the weekends, and it was the jacket that he'd go out in, and just sort sort of garden in it. And then he, he, uh, he did smoke a pipe, um, and so uh, it smelled of tobacco, and it smelled of him. And then it was, um, it was replaced by a new one, and I was devastated. You know, sort of eight years old, and just in bits that this coat had been, had been, had been lost. So he bought himself a new one, and just, yes. it was smarter, it was cleaner, it was didn't have all the holes. And so of course, it was meaningless to me because it didn't yes. smell of him.
0: Mm. Yes, these these random items that we build our little worlds on—it's extraordinary. They
1: redolent; they become redolent with memory. They really do. They're quite extraordinary because you don't just remember your mum's bag—you remember your mum's hands as she opened the clasp of the bag, and you know how she'd brutal inside it. You remember all of that physical choreography that sort mm. of brings that person back. So, yeah, wow. our tactile memory is extraordinarily strong.
0: So true, so true. Uh, Well, I've got a lovely new item and it is the beautiful hardback copy of Lost Property uh, by Helen Paris, which is out now. Helen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, you pop it, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome along to the Magic Book Club podcast. I am absolutely delighted to welcome one of our finest actors and an incredible writer to boot. It is the fabulous Ruth Jones. Hello, how are you?
2: I am very well i'm very well i'm living in a bubble of optimism that the world might finally be coming back to a little bit of normality so yes
0: yes now that, oh. is a, that is a bubble i can get on board with
2: <laughs> but don't get on board too aggressively because you might burst it
0: yes and fall to the floor that is the thing about bubbles, they're very delicate. Oh my god, that's the most amazing way into your book, Ruth. Yes. <laughs> what a segue. What a segue. Look. So let's come on, let's talk about the book. Um, Us Three, it's out now, and it is about this it's out now in paperback, I should say. And it is about this fabulous, tight knit group of friends who form this sort of bubble that floats over the years as the years go by, and it's a beautiful thing.
2: Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, it's out in paperback now. Um, It came out in hardback last September. Uh, And it was a real labor of love. It was a, a real joy to write. And in some ways, it was. It, I felt it was my first novel rather than Never Greener. Obviously, I'm very proud of Never Greener, but Never Greener was based on a screenplay that I wrote back in 2002. And us three was absolutely from scratch. And I wanted to move away from the arena of like love relationships, which is what you find in Never Greener is a very sort of quite a- toxic relationship in that Um, and i wanted to go into a different arena and i thought well female friendship and long-term female friendship seemed like a good place to explore um i am very privileged to have friends in my life who i've known since infant school and um so i for me it was uh it was I was able to sort of delve into, into that side of, of my own life, I suppose. And I wrote uh, this story and it's about three women, three very different personalities. Uh, I, I describe them as being as different as chalk, cheese and chocolate. <laughs> and they were friends from day one of infant school in the fictitious town of Coyd-Kellen. Um, Lana, Catherine and Judith. And they, when they were eight, they they swore on a curly whirly wrapper in the playground that they would always be there for each other, come what may. And really, the book is about the strength of lifelong friendship and whether or not it can withstand what life throws at us. Um, Because something does happen to uh, unbalance this perfect equilateral triangle of Judith, Lana and Katrin and it's all about how they navigate this upheaval in their friendship.
0: It is fantastic and I love I love seeing friendships on a journey because that's something that we can all relate to and also as a Welshman as well I love it starts in in Wales which is this this comforting surrounded by family it makes me want to move home when i when i read those first uh, few chapters and i'm in the flashbacks to the 1980s but but this idea of home versus uh moving on going out going to well in uh, in lana's case going off to drama school or Catherine uh, even going to cardiff as far as cardiff this idea <laughs> this idea of home friends versus post i guess you'd say post school friends and how they mm how they mix and how that sort of develops. That's really interesting. I love that stuff.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, it's funny. Somebody said to me the other day uh, that often when you have a, a novel or a drama that's set in a, a small town, that, you, you know, it's all about the, the characters and they're wanting to escape. And like as you say, the girls do go on their own different journeys, but but the town of, the, the fictitious town of Creed Kellen is always very much part of their of the three girls reasons um, and for me again there is something about having that like a sort of a code of reference that you all share so like I'm from Porthcawl, which is a seaside town in between Cardiff and Swansea on the Welsh coast and I my, my mum still lives there all my my siblings live there and my some of my dear friends still live there and so it's really interesting to see how time moves on and you know my mum has been living in Porthcawl since 1950 or something like that I mean mm. that's 71 years so it, it I just love the way that um I, I was able to dip in although I, I must emphasize that Coyd kellen is not Porthcawl, call but i did take little bits of my own upbringing and 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 the privilege of being able to uh live in a town and uh go to school for my entire school life i went to the you know i, I was lived in the same town my my parents had lived there for years there's something about that sense of belonging i think that's really yes. really valuable so I, I i nicked little things like Mills's cafe was a real place in Porthcawl. call and um, it's just nice to to have those things that that survive the entire journey of the novel that spans. Three
0: decades. Okay, so so that's what it is. I'm glad you said that because the belonging is the word that I feel like I've cracked Ruth Jones now. Because when (laughs) I watch and love Gavin and Stacey or Stella or read these books, you've got an ability to make us feel like we belong. What are your weapons? What are the things you deploy to make that work? Because you do it in a magical way. We all feel like we belong to these gangs and these groups, and we relate to your stuff. And I'm 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 fascinated to know what it is.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, well. I think, uh, I think my writing always starts with characters rather than maybe a, a, a very sophisticated plot device. I mean, sometimes I wish I did have a sophisticated plot device. But I think you can find plot in car—you know from character. You can develop plot from character. Um, so I think there's something about you really have to make the characters. If you believe in the characters and you feel like you've got to know them, and a lot of people have read the hardback of us three have said "Oh, i really felt like i that they were my friends you know by yeah. the end yeah. i think that's possibly what it is it's, it's about um it's about detail and detail of of character and um and just making the reader i hope believe that that they are real people with with real experiences. And I think also, for me, a really important uh, tool, as it were, comes from the fact that I'm an actor. So um, dialogue is really, really important to me. And um, I I, I will read aloud the, the character's dialogue just so that I know it works because often I know for me I could be reading something that I really love um, but sometimes if the, if the dialogue doesn't ring true I'm like oh I don't really I don't think anybody would actually say that you know yeah. so um, so yeah so I think dialogue is really important and character uh, and, and, and just inviting people into that world.
0: Yeah. And fun as
2: well. You know, it is.
0: There's so much fun. There's so much comedy, as you'd expect. It's Ruth Jones, for goodness sake. But also you're dealing with heavy things, mortality, for God's sake, and and, and awful. I mean, Patricia, the narcissist Patricia, there's there's ugh, there's so many um, horrible things. Whereas when you watch something like, uh, say, Stella, obviously there's serious moments in that. But comedy and, and love is what drives it. Whereas in this book, you, you dabble in things like mortality and it's really it's 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 gut-wrenching when it's when it's done well Aww. so you know it's it's do, do you find that's a stretch do you find yourself here's the question I knew there's a question at the end mm. of this do you find yourself um uh, uh pushing yourself do you feel when you write these books this is new territory for me as a writer
2: uh yeah I I, I mean uh, you know I, I've, I've been lucky that I haven't had to go through the, the the awfulness that some people have had to experience in terms of grief I have I've, I've have experienced loss. Um, and I think it is a shared, it's something that you do share. I mean, one of the, the the joys of lifelong friendship is that you do pass through life's milestones together. And mm-hmm. those milestones can be, you know, like I, I, I've i often said this, the friends that were there uh, when we entered the, the school I Steadford when we were nine and got the wrong poem and, um, Friends that were, were are the same friends that were there when I passed my driving test or when I got married or at my dad 's funeral you know and and so there's something really um special about sharing with friends that you're fortunate enough to have for a long time um, sharing those things with them and I think um, it, sometimes like i obviously i don't want to spoil the story, but you know some of the things you're alluding to in there they did make me really sad mm. and and also there's, there's some real joy in there. And I was like, oh, there's something so delicious about when it all falls in place when you're writing and you go, oh, oh God, that's got to happen. That's got to happen. You know, and when I think back to the original, my original treatment for that novel, it wasn't quite what ended up happening um, and I think that's that is part of the joy of the discovery of of writing a novel is that you suddenly go wouldn't it be really good if I went in that direction and sometimes those are for really heartbreaking reasons or for really joyous reasons I hope people will 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 share that yeah uh,
0: this idea that writing is a lonely uh, is a lonely task it's not true because you're surrounded by all these people and all these things that could happen at any moment
2: yeah I mean you're not alone in the sense that you've got your characters with you and uh you know even the even the the bad characters like you mentioned stella and and i i always think uh you know stella didn't really have any baddies in it it had a couple but essentially they were nice people i mean you were in stella and yeah. your character was kind of like uh <laughs> he wasn't a bad there was a word there was... was a word that, uh...
0: <laughs> that producer and writer David Pete used to describe my character <laughs> I can't unfortunately repeat on this podcast
2: but it was spot on <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the you know you want to enjoy being irritated by characters or yeah. um, or being completely um, frustrated by them and I think in Us 3 one of my favourite characters is Patricia who you, you mentioned Patricia is Judith's mother mm. and she's awful yeah. she's awful <laughs> and um, but she was a delight to write for because of that that reason you know she she really was and her that situation again uh, uh, well I don't want to go into but there is a there, something that happens to Patricia uh in later life was based on a, on a, a real experience of a friend of mine and uh, the same thing happened to her mum and and um you know you just go you can't but I you know if I read that would I believe that really happened in real life well it did it really did happen mm. um so yeah it's it's uh it's good to have the baddies in there as well do
0: you have to get the nod from people if you're gonna if you're gonna use something that's happened in someone's life do you feel the urge to sort of get in touch with them and say listen I'm putting this in my book is that okay or do you feel like you're fictionalizing it enough for it to be harmless
2: I'm really sensitive so if, if I ever yeah. have used something that like I described and I did I just did check it out with my friend. I mean, you, mm. you wouldn't know who it was. So that's that, no. that I was really careful with that. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, and there are some things that I, I take a risk with and go, but they're, they're very benign things. So, for example, Mills's Cafe that I mentioned earlier, that's mm. my friend Lisa. Her, her dad ran that cafe, but there's nothing detrimental to say about that. So, mm. uh, and she was just really touched that it was in there. And often, you know, people there are little things that, that only certain people will recognize. They go, "Oh, I noticed you put X, Y, and Z in." And I yeah. think that's that's quite a nice sort of testament to 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 friendship, you know, to my friends, I guess, to put put little things in here and there.
0: Yeah, yeah. This book is bursting with friendship and love. And it's it's such a good read. And it's out in paperback now. Uh, Ruth Jones, Us Three. Um, we've run out of time on the Book Club podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you for oh. hours, but time is a problem. Time is a problem. Dealt with beautifully thank- in this book. But thank you for coming thank on the show. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure as ever.
0: Ruth Jones there absolutely wonderful and if you love Gavin and Stacey and Stella and all those shows I cannot recommend this book enough it's just like diving into a book version of those wonderful tv comedies it is a really really great read if you love Marianne Keyes you're going to love this book and that's it for the Magic Book Club podcast join me next time for brilliant stories from fantastic authors and as ever head over to magic.co.uk to see the rest of our May picks and join the club for yourself and of course in the meantime happy reading